Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. This episode is sponsored by Sheet Happens Publishing. Sheet Happens has a selection of over 200 quality tab books, and they work directly with the artists, so you know you're getting the most accurate tabs possible. And let me just say that that's a big deal, because I remember growing up and getting tab books that were not done with the artists, and it was anybody's guess if they were accurate or not. And they were notorious for having mistakes. So the fact that these are done with the artist is everything. You can learn actually how to play your favorite tracks for real. Just so you know, all books come with guitar profiles and a PDF ebook. Just use promo code RIFFHARD at checkout for 15% off your order. Go to Sheet Happens Publishing.com and that's promo code RIFFHARD for 15% off. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is James Monteith, who is one of the guitarists in Tesseract. In addition to being a guitar player in a pretty major band, James is also a publicist for various labels and artists such as Nuclear Blast, Spine Farm, Pliny, Intervals, and uh, the one and only Zach Wild. I introduce you, James Monteith. James Monteith, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for being here. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Hello, James. It's a pleasure. Hello, Brown. How are you, Brown? It's been a while. Doing well. Doing well. Doing well. Like it's, uh, I'm currently set up in my house because I'm expecting a week of snow here in Yorkshire. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but yeah, doing well. How are you, James? Yeah, doing all right. It just, I don't know, it just feels like this has been the longest time of kind of Groundhog Day. I feel like every day has been the same for a year and it's very, <laughs> really, really strange. And um, obviously it's weird for everybody, but yeah, I don't know. Other than that, I'm good. Within that year, though, you've done quite a bit of stuff. Live stream, uh, the marketing or a PR for guitar players, side projects. Like it's, not like it's not like you're not doing anything. No, not at all. I think, I think I guess what I'm ultimately missing really is just not being in southeast London constantly. And it's amazing how easy it is when you do travel a lot to take that for granted and then when you're suddenly grounded and the furthest I think I've been from my house in the last year is 100 miles and it just feels very weird when <laughs> and that was for the stream right uh, that was for the stream yeah actually we, I went on holiday to Norfolk for a weekend which I think is about the same distance the other direction which is <laughs> pretty exotic they've got quite nice beaches there actually I mean it's not quite Spain or California but you know it's a uh, <laughs> I guess with Tesseract, we're really kind of lucky with the pandemic because we'd finished our touring cycle. And I think we had a few things booked in, like well, there was Arctangent Festival and then there was uh, 
um, yeah, a couple of other bits and pieces, but nothing major. So our plans weren't really that ruined, unlike some bands who were like release records pretty much as it kicked in and had all their you know major touring cancelled, which really sucked for them. So in a weird way, we kind of, sort of sat back a bit and we were like, all right, um, what should we do then? And so the focus kind of went on uh, a new record. And then uh, the live stream thing really kicked off. Um, and uh, I remember, I think, which band was it that really grabbed loads of attention? It was Code Orange. One of the earliest ones was Code Orange. I actually watched Papa Roach live stream pretty early on as well. I didn't actually watch that one. <laughs> I don't know if you guys were the first band to do it, but I think you guys got recognized for being the first band to do it really well. I think um, definitely in our world, I think one of the ones which really stood out early on was um, Behemoth's one, where they basically had a full-on theatrical production. Um, yes. And, um, and it was, I mean, it basically wasn't really a, you know, a live show. It was, you know, it was, a, yeah. I think it was like a theater production in a way, or a movie. And... Um, I think that kind of set the bar. And so when we were going to do it, we're like, well, we're going to have to match that. We're going to, in terms of like, you know, being able to offer something different and exciting. Because a lot of live streams that I did dip into were kind of dry. Because let's face it, I, at least for me, I think when I'm at a gig, the enjoyment is the environment, the atmosphere, the sound of the live band in the room, like, you know, the volume. And then when you suddenly take all that away and you've just got a band on a stage being filmed and it's just kind of dull. Yeah. More than kind of. <laughs> well, there's tons of that stuff. I mean, I know, maybe I'm in the wrong business if I'm saying bands on stage are boring. But <laughs> I agree with you, though. I don't think that that many people outside of like real fans, like the diehards, watch like say f complete concert videos. I think maybe they did back before YouTube when DVDs came out once every few years, but uh. You know, DVDs for a particular band would come out once every two years. It's like a big deal when Opeth released uh, that live DVD in 2003 or four, but there was no YouTube. Uh, now I think it's much more, it's much more common to just go find the song you want or uh, that moment you want to see from the show, not sit there and watch the whole thing. Yeah, totally. I agree with that. I think also, not only was it stuff a lot more scarce before YouTube. Um, people watch things for different things. Some people like to watch the whole show. Um, if you're a guitarist, for example, you might be wanting to watch to see the players play and try and learn from them, which in standard live videos, it's not usually that helpful because obviously it's cut to be entertaining, not so you can see everything that's going on. Whereas now there's so many different formats of video that you can watch. Like if you want to learn how to play a guitar solo, you literally just put it into YouTube, somebody playing this guitar solo, and then you can watch them play it and learn it and I think there are so many avenues to find what you want that like, just standard live gigs are quite dull. So anyway, um, that kind of made us realise we needed to do something really, really awesome. And um, Amos, basically, um, at the basis, uh, he kind of just went to town on really extravagant ideas. And what we ended up with was probably about a quarter of his vision. Um, but I mean, it's good to aim super high and then realise, oh no, we don't have a million pound budget. And then scale, <laughs> scale it back to something that's affordable. To be fair, it actually didn't cost a silly amount of money to put on because we were just very frugal with um, things like, like the venue space we used was the warehouse where the, the lighting company kept their lights. So there were no you know, massive venue costs. Like for example, in Architects, they did a... Royal Albert Hall. I think, yeah. I think it cost them something silly like 30, 40 grand. That makes sense. 
Let's be honest, though, it does look fucking amazing. <laughs> it does look amazing, but that's like a massive outlay, and that's one that we didn't have. So we managed to basically keep it really, really cheap. Um, so, I mean, the most exciting part was all the lights and the lasers. And, and um, it's the first time I've ever been on a stage where we had a laser safety tech. We had to have a safety briefing. Basically, don't look at the lasers, otherwise you'll fry your eyes, is essentially the message. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How did it go over? It went over well, right? Went over really well. And obviously it wasn't live live. We pre-recorded it. Well, it says no way you could really pull that off, I think. Uh, but we went and played basically the set four times. And the set was two hours long. So that was actually the hardest gig I've ever played in my life. <laughs> the third time we were playing it, it was just like, got to get through this. Just get through it. Ah. Did you do it all, all in one day? All in one day. So we basically played three two-hour sets in one day. Damn, man, that's intense. Yeah, it was pretty hard work. But luckily, we didn't need to overly perform because like the light show and the video screen and you know, the big monolith video screen at the back. And now, do you think it was worth it? Absolutely. It, it was probably, well, it's definitely the most important thing we did in 2020, simply because we weren't doing anything. We had nothing going on and bands do need to still keep keep visual you've got to, got to be doing things you've got to be putting things out one thing that's definitely different now to, to even 10 years ago is that stuff moves so quickly and you've got to basically keep current and keep in people's minds otherwise people will find something else i guess maybe well i mean not always i think or oh, lots of bands always still retain their following but like this band <laughs> right, exactly yeah <laughs> It was worth it based on the context, but there's been a lot of argument about whether that's a sustainable thing. And obviously, I don't know the inner details of, of any of it as far as profits or anything like that. But do you think that it's something sustainable as a thing that can be done over and over and over and over? Or is it something that was just super important given the context and time period? I think about both. I don't think that if people keep churning out the same things, it's not sustainable because it gets it gets boring. I watched one, actually I'm not going to name the band because that'd be a bit mean, but they're a really good band that I like and it was just kind of just like, oh, same old. Um, and it's not going to replace the live show. It's not going to replace that experience. And, um, and I, I guess it could be sustainable if people keep pushing the boundaries of what could be done. Like we had one, one idea of, could you do a virtual reality one where it's basically filmed in VR and 3D, so you have a VR headset and then it kind of makes you feel like you're there. And that could be an interesting thing to do in the next year. But then where do you go from there? Um, uh, but then hopefully we'll have live gigs back and then um, we can move on. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, they're, I think they're here to stay, but I don't think that they're going to be the saviour or replace gigs. So. I think it will be good if it starts getting implemented into touring schedules. And what I mean by that is there's one gig on the tour where you do the live stream setup completely, um, day off before, day off after. But it's done in a geographical way where you can only watch it if you're in a certain radius of that particular city. Because obviously, you know, when you're on tour in Europe and people are like, why aren't you coming to Brussels? Why aren't you coming to, you know, all these other Brazil. places? And <laughs> Not Brazil, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. But, you know, like, I think it would be good for something like that, because then at that point, you can turn that experience into a VIP experience and then also live stream to all the places you didn't go on that European tour so that those people don't feel like they're being left out. Yeah, that's very true. And to be fair, if you've you know, prepared a set and you've got production, you may as well you know make a document of it as well. So you've got it and keep it forever. Because I guess we've been out on countless tours where we've had various lighting production. 
But then once the tour's done, it's done and you know, we've forgotten about it. I mean, there might be some crappy camera videos on YouTube, but there's no you know, real memory of that. Whereas, I guess, by doing a live stream recording like that, you could, you know, you're basically, you know, live forever then. So, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad if you try to find good videos of live shows, maybe that you played 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It's like, maybe, I'm sure there's a few, but... I'm sure it's also not ideal and uh, almost like if a lot of things didn't even happen. Mm. Just a memory. Yeah, basically, <laughs> just a memory. And I, I like the idea of making things permanent. I think that's one of the beautiful things about technology. And the problem is, because when, when you play shows night after night, they're not even memories, you just don't remember them anymore. Especially with the uh, beer consumption that... <laughs> even if you don't party, I think that... Uh, it all blurs together anyways. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, they, they don't stand out enough to, unless something really crazy happens. I don't think that, I think that it would be a blur for even someone sober. Not that I know, because I never did a sober tour, but, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm assuming. Going back to one of your earlier points as well, basically about financials, it's something that bigger bands could probably use to sustain themselves, because like, the stream did quite well for us. I think we kind of, made a similar amount of money to what we would have done if it was a, a, a tour. So in that respect, it's like... So after a full tour? After, yeah, let's say we did a month in Europe. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, totally. It was like, I mean, in a, in a weird way, like the amount of work that went in, it was probably the same amount of work for an actual tour, but just playing the one show on the one day. And you got to sleep in your own bed. Got to sleep in our own bed. Actually, no, we didn't, because <laughs> we had to film for three days, but I was sleeping in a travel lodge, which isn't... Still not as bad as a top, you know, a bunk or a, a, a bandwagon bunk. Oh God, yeah, they're not good, are they? No. <laughs> hey, I'll never experience the bandwagon bunk. I didn't. You didn't do a bandwagon because I don't think they were around. Yeah, we, I did one. There was a bandwagon, really, that yeah. early on. Damn, did you like mm-hmm. it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, There's nothing to like about it, in my opinion. Dan Tesseract singer. He um he got so used to the sound of the generator. He recorded the generator, and then he um, he used to use it when he got back home. He put it on at night on his phone, listening to the generator to help him go to sleep. <laughs> I'm actually not joking. On YouTube, there's uh, there's like ten hour long videos, like airplane engine noise. It's like ten hours long, and uh, it's just the rumble that you would hear if you're on a flight for people to go to sleep to. I bet somebody's done a bandwagon one. They have to have done. I might even check. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you they have. So that's interesting about the financials because what I was wondering was what's looked at as success. Like I know everybody defines success differently, but I was thinking if success means that it does as well as one show, that's probably not sustainable because it's a lot more work than one show. It's going to diminish in quality. Like if, if you have to do it as often as one show, for that kind of profit and then uh, do it over and over and over, that's going to lose its uh, value very, very quickly. However, if it's as profitable as a tour and you can do it spread out, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, although you can only do that one tour rather than, I guess if you're actually touring, you tour the States and you tour Europe and you could do a festival run and you could do Asia. So it's still not quite the same. But it also made me think that Bands with maybe a little bit less, well, can't command similar ticket prices, I don't think will make very much money at all. 
Um, whereas at least when you're on the road, you do get a solid guarantee. Yeah, you can budget for you know, surviving as a band if you're a smaller band on the road, which I don't think I don't think Stream's going to replace that because people generally don't like paying for stuff unless they have to. And I think if it's a smaller band, people are less likely to do it, unless, unless it's like a really hype hot band that everyone's excited about. But I think if you're starting out, it's not really sustainable. Can we talk about your uh, publicity business a little bit? Sure. If anyone's wondering, James does PR for people like Pliny. And one thing that I'm curious about is a lot of people will hit me up asking for advice, um, wanting to get a publicist because they think that a publicist is going to make them famous. Um, and I think you've got a unique, uh, a unique perspective because you're, you're doing the publicity side, but you also are in a band who uh, probably has worked with outside publicists. So you know both what they're capable of and uh, what benefit they, uh, they deliver. What do you think a publicist is for when it comes to, you know, the guitar market, the elite guitar player market? In terms of what, the way I approach it, and then I guess most kind of rock and metal, I guess more muso people doing publicity approach it, is that it's essentially amplifying what already exists. So there needs to be something exciting. There needs to be something unique. There needs to be something that sets that artist apart for a publicist to even begin. You can't invent it for them. Absolutely, yeah. So Pliny was exciting when he came along because, I mean, he was quite a young kid at the time, his early 20s. Um, his sort of fusion-y approach to sort of techy, because I guess it was never really tech metal, but he did have tech, you know, quite a lot of tech metal elements. And I don't know, he was just doing something fresh and exciting and nobody else was doing it. And he's kind of, he was kind of like a publicist's dream, really, because it was basically like, essentially, you just got to pick out the key things to explain to journalists what's great about this artist so they give it their first listen. And with him, people would listen to it and they're like, bang, okay, yeah, I get that. That's exciting. That's different. And so he's probably not the best example because he is somebody who's particularly you know, exceptional. But uh, quite often, like with solo guitar players, it's just basically finding what's what they do differently and then explaining, basically selling that to the media. And there are so many brilliant guitar players out there, but it is, especially nowadays, getting harder and harder to actually pick out ones who are doing something exciting and new. Having said that, there are loads who are doing something. I'm kind of going around in circles, but I guess you get the gist of what I mean. It's basically a publicist isn't a magician. They just can take something that's already exciting and elevate its profile. You know, I've always told people that they need to have a story already. Absolutely, yeah. Publicist isn't going to invent the story for you. If you don't have a story, they're not going to have the ammunition to do their job with. So it's pointless to try and get a publicist until you have something for them to publicize. Mm. Yeah, a plan. In the first place. I mean, not just a plan. I mean, an actual story. There needs to be something interesting about the artist that's worth writing or talking about. That's what I'm saying about the plan, though, as well, because you need things for the publicist to actually publicize. You have an album and stuff like that. Like, obviously, that's granted that's going to come out, but it's what you do between the albums that I think that makes the most amount of, you know, can make the most amount of progress. Like, an album is a given, but, like, for example, Tesseract doing the live stream, that's something that a publicist can really take hold of and really push. So I think it's it's in combination with the story and the plan to do both together. Well, publicists can take the Tesseract live stream and run with it, not because necessarily 
the story of the live stream, even though that is cool. Say that a band that didn't have Tesseract's story tried a live stream, there'd be nothing for a publicist to write about. Like, say, just take a random band from the middle of nowhere. They have the same publicity plan as Tesseract, but uh, nobody knows who they are. You could write about the you could write about the live stream all you want and nobody's going to pick it up. No one's going to care. But the fact that they already have a story leading up to that press release. So it's the press release doesn't have to be about the band's story, but the band has to have a story. It's very true. In order for anyone to even give a fuck in the first place, I think. Yeah. I think the story is especially important with, with bands more so than, well, actually with anybody, but with bands, that's absolutely key. And one, one thing which, I'm dealing with quite a lot is, is that I end up having have meetings with bands and find out about their own personal life stories. So, you know, think like magazines like your Kerrangs and so on, they don't really care about the music. Well, they do. Well, to a degree. <laughs> I should, I just realized they might listen to this and I'll get in trouble. Well, the music, the music's like a given, right? The assumption is that there's music and that it's worth listening to, I would guess, or that someone should like it. Well, the music, I guess, has to be right for whatever that outlet is and whatever their audience is. But then yeah. to get to do feature pieces, uh, quite often they want to know about the person's history, what's inspired them to make the music they do. Um, have they had, had any? Have they overcome any traumas or anything difficult in life? I mean, that you know that sort of story is very popular, especially now, right, with everyone sort of in lockdown and people struggling with mental health issues and anxiety and depression. Basically, anything going on in the news is quite useful. Like with the whole Marilyn Manson thing going on right now, um, highlighting you know, abuse is a topical thing. Not saying you have to have been abused as a musician to, for the press to talk about you, but you know, it's a. <laughs> It'll get talked about these days. Yeah, basically something that's something topical massively helps, especially with newer bands. With older bands, it's interesting. Like bands that have been around for a while, back to what Brown was saying, what you do in between albums is what keeps you interesting because sometimes it's quite easy for bands to plateau and they don't do anything at all. And then they release another album. And then when you go to pitch that album to the press, they're like, oh, we'll review it. But what, what else is, what's the band got going on? What have they done? And this, if it's like, oh no, they just kind of sat at home, wrote an album, and uh, went to the pub, had a pint. You know, there's no story. This is our heaviest one yet. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. When, when new artists ask me that exact question they ask you, I think I basically just say to them, at this moment in time, just focus on what you're doing differently now because yeah the music has to come first the music has to be excellent and then the story stuff i mean you can actually just not make it up but you can really embellish you know certain facts to make them more interesting we could just have a really good timely one like i'm working with a guitarist right now who uh she's killer her name's diamond row and she plays in a band called Te oh, I know Tetra. Diamond. yeah and um and like her, her story is quite simple. She's basically just breaking down uh, boundaries of, um, you know, sort of race and gender stereotypes, being an amazing shredder and a black female. And it's a very basic story, but it's getting a lot of attention. And yeah, especially with, you know, everything going on in the world at the moment and issues around racism. It's just, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant, simple story to obviously not overly exploit because you don't want to you know, cheese it up. But it's, uh, yeah, it's something that people want to talk about and people want to uh, support diversity, which is a good thing. But also, it's got to help that she's been at it a very long time. She's uh, from my hometown, and I remember her band was already a local band that was doing well at the time that my band was touring, which is in the late 2000s. Her band was already working really, really hard, and I recorded them in 2012, and they already were working really, really hard, getting ignored, but working really, really hard. And so 
in addition to the the angle that people are taking on writing about her, also, she didn't just come out of nowhere. You know, like she has a long ass history of working really, really hard for this. I think you put the two together and it's compelling. Absolutely. She's the real deal. She's you know, a proper grafter, um, a you know, great guitar player and has that key story. And as a result, that band's blowing up now. They're doing really, really well. I think their last single was a huge hit in the States on radio. And like the magazines here are all going nuts for them. And um, I don't know if you've heard much of their music, but it's basically just new metal bangers with shred solos. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with them. Which is great. I love new metal and I like solos. <laughs> it used to be like metalcore bangers and then it became new metal bangers, which is suits them way better, I think, actually. Yeah, suits my taste as well. I love a bit of new metal. I remember your old band. I'm not ashamed to admit it. <laughs> don't worry, I love new metal too. Everyone loves new metal. If they say they don't love it, they're lying. <laughs> yeah, what's I not, actually agree. What's, what's not to love? <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about, in addition to someone like Diamond, where the story is very, very obvious, like what's the angle with someone like Pliny, for instance? Well, with him, it was basically he was doing something very unique and different as a, a solo guitar player, but he just had a very unique playing style. Like his 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 tones, his feel, like his his approach to melody were very distinctive. Like when you listen to one of his solos, you know it's him. He's kind of one of those players. There are a few like that, like um, so Jakob Zetecki, yeah, Polish guitarist. He's another one of those. When you sort of hear him hear him play, you're like you just really can identify that lead sound. I guess that's something that you can't, I think that's something that people either have or they don't have. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think in in his case, it was definitely his playing, which stood out. His personality really shines out as well, just because he's very, very likable. He comes across very well at interviews. He's very charming. He's very humble. And and uh, I, think, I think that combination with, also the timing as well, I think like, he just came at a time where there was a, a hole in that area that needed filling. Well, I think the endorsements from Steve Vai helped as well. Like literally yeah. everyone was like, doesn't hurt. <laughs> I was like, right. Steve Vai says you're good. Okay. I have to listen. What is it that drew you to helping other guitar players out with this? I think initially when I realized that being in a band wasn't going to make me much money, I needed a job. <laughs> <laughs> good reason. But not just that. I think also, um, I mean, I love, I love music. I love listening to music. And before I did this, I worked in sort of a media uh, related, you know, PR related job. So I had a vague understanding of how it worked. And I kind of thought, well, you know, I could do this for bands. I could do this for music. And um, that would also help my own band. It would help me get into the music industry more and build better contacts. And yeah, there's something, I don't know, there's something also really, really enjoyable about um, helping grow an artist and basically help be a little bit, a little part of their, their success. I won't say too much. I mean, some publicists like claim that they're break, they they're responsible for breaking bands. And to be fair, I've never worked with a big enough artist, I suppose, to make that claim. But it's nice to basically do your bit to help help grow an artist that deserves it. Do you think that um, most artists, once they're at a certain level, you know, once they do have a story, it's a a necessary part of the team. Like most artists, I mean, obviously, some people are masters of the media themselves, but I think they're anomalies. Do you think that um, for most artists, it's important to have someone who speaks for them setting this stuff up? Definitely at a certain level, because, well, for a start, there's just a certain amount of graft and knowing how to place things correctly, which as an artist, you don't want to learn how to do. Well, maybe some might, but um, it's much better just to have somebody else do that job 
like like with anything really like you're as an artist you're your own business you've got to have your team with their own specialized skills and um especially if it's a growing artist um when the tables flip and instead of having your publicist basically pitching and trying to sell you all the time your publicist is then fielding calls so for example i work with zach wilde and it's like the other way around with him like i'm never i don't have to pitch anything it's literally people saying we want zach for this we want him to do that and um and then i sort of feed it back and i get a yes or no and then there's also it's just yeah i guess the board game kind of changes and you just need somebody to manage that just as a thing as well just for our external listeners when it comes to pr um you know what we've just been talking about it's never really guaranteed because regardless of what your agent PR agent might think about you as a band and they might think you're the best thing ever. You're trying to sell the idea of this band to people that still have their own personal preferences when it comes to music. Not only their own personal preferences, they might also have their own agendas. They might be a bit like, okay, we're pushing this kind of thing right now. Um, So I may really like this band that you're selling to me, but it's not right for what we're doing now. Um, And magazines always change their agendas. They change what they, they think their audience wants. And um, I guess to a degree, it is the publisher's job to stay on top of what the media wants. So if, a, if your publicist does say to you, I'm pretty sure I can get you this, they should be able to get that. If you are talking to a publicist, just you know, try and trust their opinion. And if they say that's not achievable, then it's probably not. Like sometimes you get, uh, oh, God, I had this one client once. I'm not going to name him. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was like basically a prog project. And it did really well. Like prog mag went nuts for it and all the places you'd expect. And um and he 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 legit came to me and said, right, I think this music is so epic. I want to have it played on fashion catwalks. I want models to walk down a catwalk with my music playing. What? Okay. Hook that up for me. And um, he he wasn't joking. He 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 meant that. And um, obviously had to let him down. A, I don't really have many connections in that world. And B, you play weird, obscure prog. Have you ever? You know, think, think about it for a second. <laughs> so when you get a when you get approached with something that's just completely not in reality, how do you respond? Like, how do you deal with it in a way that's not going to lose you the gig? Well, to be honest, if they're completely unrealistic and they're going to be really difficult, I'd rather lose the gig. I'll be like, look. Fair enough. It's like, oh, you're, you're a deathcore band and you want to get on the cover of The Guardian. No, sorry, guys. That's not, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, some people do come with big ideas, which is actually a good thing. I think if you're an artist, you need to have big ideas and you need to be thinking, I want to be doing X, Y, Z. But And then most people like that, then if you have a chat with them and say, well, this is realistic, this is realistic, we can shoot for this, we'll see how it goes. This, no way, and so on. And usually you can have a reasonable conversation like that and then make a plan and everyone's kind of on the same page and happy. So, um, yeah, most people are pretty reasonable, unless they're insane, but there are also insane people in the music industry <laughs> as well. say, yeah, <laughs> there are definitely insane people. How does uh, someone organically get on your radar? Or, I mean, how does someone get on your radar at all? I'm curious what the process is. To be honest, where our business is at the moment, the vast majority of stuff is going through labels now. So we're working with um, Spine Farm and Napalm and Long Branch and Unified. And basically, we do mostly sign stuff now. However, we do try and keep our ears to the ground for something cool. And uh, Matt, who I work with, actually picked up this amazing, this really cool new band. They're tiny. And they're called Heriot, H-E-R-O-T, I think. And it's basically this really nasty 
nasty metal. I'm not really explaining it very well. Um, I need to get the, <laughs> the press release up. It's nasty metal, but it's just got like a really kind of fresh vibe. They're tiny, and uh, he picked them up and started to do loads of good things with them, like put single out and. And it had like everyone from rock sound through to um, Revolver in the States like pick up on them. It's this tiny little British band. And so I guess we do try and keep our ear to the ground. But again, I think with Harriet, the music's exciting, but also I mean, their look is fresh. Like Everything about them is just, it just stands out like, a little bit more than loads of other new bands. And they may not have even intended it themselves. It's just how it worked out. Um, but yeah, so... I mean, also, I mean, we've got an email address, which is info at holdtight.co. And if anybody wants to send us their music, they can do. We we do check it. So we're always looking for new music, but we don't that often take on like new, new bands anymore, unless it's something that we can really see will work, if that makes sense. So it generally will come on your radar through trusted sources in general. Well, there'll be something on a label we work with. So probably established to a certain degree. Yeah. But yeah, always still got ears open for something fresh and new that's going to, yeah, that blows our mind. Is it more challenging in a way to work with an established artist or less challenging or di just differently challenging? It's differently challenging. I think a new artist is basically lots more just graph, banging on doors saying, check this out, check this out. This is great. Um, an established artist, sometimes you're dealing with um, expectations, which might be a bit different to what you think are achievable. Or sometimes they're an artist that has kind of stagnated a bit, so it's kind of a hard sell to get them much other than the basic reviews and so on. But yeah, I think every every artist has its own challenges, but I guess the most fun ones are where there's a good story or there's been some good activity and you've got loads of ammunition. Basically, if you've got all the ammo, then it's quite, and it's not easy, but it's getting results is very doable. I haven't had a dud in a while, which is quite nice, but sometimes you do get duds where... Just nobody cares. <laughs> just nobody cares. And it's actually really kind of, you feel really bad for the artist. Because, to be honest, I think, imagine if I was that guy <laughs> or girl. Yeah. And, um, and you feel really bad for them. And, but then I think having that, I think that's one thing which is quite, which I think I'm, I'm quite good at is that I can have that empathy for them because I'm just like, I, I know where you're at and I feel really shitty about it. But this is what this person's saying. And I always try to get res responses, to be honest, like rather than just, like if, some, if nobody's picking up on something, I'm just like, you know, give one on a call. Look, look, just maybe two minutes. What, what do you think? What do you think of this? And you just say, yeah, I just thought it was really shit or whatever. And yeah, at least I've got something, uh, something to give back to the band, even if it's bad. So I think the biggest problem actually as a publicist is if you're just getting nothing back from anyone, um, and then you send a report saying no response, no response, no response. The band probably think you're not doing your job. Um, yeah. So um, I always do. Basically, if it's bombing, I make sure I get responses from some key people to say, uh, oh, actually, God, I once, years ago, I did a little radio campaign for a pretty established band. don't know if I should name them. I'm going to name it. Band yeah. called Therapy, who I used to love as a teenager. Yes. Like, Trouble Gum was amazing. Um, Infernal Love was amazing. Like In the 90s, I was well into them. Anyway, so I got offered a single by them, and it was a pretty dirty track, actually. I can't remember what it was called. Um, but I was just like, therapy is going to be great. And yeah, everyone must love therapy, even though it's 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, it absolutely bombed. I couldn't get it anywhere. Like, nobody wanted to play it. And the label were really pissed off. The band were probably really pissed off. And um, so I literally ended up calling up some radio people saying, look, can you just tell me what was wrong with it? And I, I just got like three or four people saying, yeah, like, it's a really boring, dull song. We're not going to play it. And I put that in the report. And 
they still weren't very happy, but at least I had some evidence that it wasn't just me not doing my job. But yeah. Well, I think that that's good because, yeah, one of the hardest things in life is uncertainty. And in the music industry, people have a habit of avoiding telling the truth when something's negative. We're just avoiding saying anything. They just skirt you rather than say something bad. And so you're kind of left with, uh, you're left with, not knowing what the hell's going on. And the reason you don't know what the hell's going on is because sometimes people don't respond and then they do respond two months later with something positive. So there's no way to interpret no response. It could just mean they haven't got into it yet. It could mean they like it, but something it's something for down the line. Like it could mean anything. Or it could mean so, they've not even got to it. They've not even listened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and it could go even further than that. I mean, imagine that you were the publicist for Meshuggah between 1995 and 2003. I can imagine that that was an exceedingly difficult job. But imagine like giving that to someone to put, play on the radio. And <laughs> <laughs> you already know the answer, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, to be fair, I'd like to think Meshuggah probably didn't have massive radio aspirations with those early releases. <laughs> no, not at all. But, you know, I, I would say that until Obson came out, they were still pretty underground. And that even their PR agent's job from 1995 to that point was probably pretty difficult, even though, you know, they knew that it was great, which it was, obviously. Yeah, I don't know. I'd like to think, I mean, to be fair, I mean, I wasn't doing this job, obviously, back then, but I'd like to think that Destroyer Rays Improved would have got some level of hype because it was so game-changing. But then also, maybe it was just so ahead of its time that people didn't get it. I think, I, think, yeah. I feel like nothing had a bit of hype about it. Nothing had hype. I don't remember Destroyer Race Improved having much hype until several years later. I think that maybe Obzum was the beginning of it, but I think that maybe Catch 33 was when everyone's sort of started getting steered towards what they were doing. But I think that, yeah, nothing probably had a little bit, but still it wasn't anything compared to what it is now. Yeah, totally. It would have been a, it would have been a nightmare for a PR agent to sell that just because of how ahead of its time it was. And I'd probably think the same thing about bands like Candiria and even Dillinger Escape Plan in those early years was probably quite difficult too. Yeah, God, imagine trying to pitch um oh blood what, what was the first album called the second album calculating infinity calculating infinity like yeah that was like i mean what would you have even described that as back then was it 2000 that came out like, uh 1999 i think maybe yeah but here is just some ludicrous craziness like i mean it's almost like non-genre definable isn't it they still got on tour with system of a down though nice i think that uh mike Patton really helped them out by taking them on that Mr. Bungle tour. Yeah. Obviously they did the EP together as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was later. Um, but they took them on that first tour, which I think, um, gave them a lot of credibility. System of a Down had just toured with Bungle. I bet you there's something to do with that, that Probably. they were, they were introduced to the right crowd who could appreciate them in bigger bands at the right time and, uh, were taken on tour just for being awesome. Because I remember seeing them with Mr. Bungle and nobody knew who the fuck they were or cared until they started playing. And we're like, holy shit, <laughs> this is amazing. But I've never heard anything like it. I could imagine those early crowds would have just stood there for the first few songs just going, what is this? Yeah. When I saw them, 
opened for Bungle, it was uh, actually the crowd was into it immediately. Really? Wow. Nobody knew who they were. That's that's kind of the right crowd, though, isn't it? That's like Mr. when you think of Mr. Bungle, it's kind of in a similar kind of vein. It's just a little bit more chaotic. But I can understand that those people would have liked it. Yeah. Yeah, it was the right. That's kind of the luck of the draw thing that the right person uh, who has just the right avenue for your art discovers you at just the right time. That's uh, not, you know, not to discount any work involved, but uh, that's some that's some good luck right there. The timing of the whole thing, because that is the perfect audience to break a band like that, too, or was the perfect audience to break a band like that, too. Um, but then imagine Meshuggah on tour with Slayer. <laughs> I, could, I could see that working. Could see it could, that working. It could as well. I see it working completely. But they can also you... went on tour with Tool. Yeah, that also works. But what I'm saying is that was early. That Tool tour was a real key moment in Meshuggah's career. I think that really helped put them on the map, um, especially in the States. It was a US tour, right? Wasn't that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So out of curiosity, so this obviously takes some time the band takes some time uh where does guitar playing fit in well to be fair actually i feel like i've done a bit more guitar playing over lockdown than i had done previously just because i guess not traveling anywhere not doing anything and um i've got a couple of kids so well before when they were still going to school my routine generally was i get them into school play some guitar for an hour go to work maybe play a bit of guitar at lunch go to work and then they would come home and then once they're all in bed Maybe do some guitar in the evening, but I probably just watch TV. But uh, yeah, I think uh, it's been an interesting time. I've, I've been spending a lot of time like just trying to not practice, but just play different things. Because I think it's very easy to get in a rut when you play in a band of only playing that music and that style. And um, I love playing uh, Tesseract's music; it's great. Um, and I really, I really went through in the last year a phase of going. I'm going to play in standard tuning a lot because. <laughs> I just hadn't done it in in forever. Traitor. Well, I was thinking like, oh, I can improvise again. I know. What... <laughs> that's that's how a guitar should work. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, as I mentioned before, I've, had, I've been working on a little, kind of a little side project, which is kind of very thrash-based. What I found quite interesting about that was that um, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just do this for a bit of a laugh. And it started off as a bit of a laugh. And I realized that after I played thrash for about two minutes, I had to stop because I was tired. <laughs> like, <laughs> right hand? Yeah, my right hand was just like, just not used to that constant, you know, just constant usage or at least constant repetitive usage. I got a perfect thing for you, mate. I got a perfect thing for you. It's called Riff Hard, mate. Ah, nice. Yeah, well, basically, I, I was like, right, okay, well, I'm going to get better at this um, because I'm clearly not, I, I assumed it was a lot easier than it was. And I think it was. I mean, mostly just down to, I guess, my technique just not being as efficient as it should be because I've never really had to play with that level of speed and intensity for a long period of time. Um, and so, yeah, last year I spent quite a lot of time just thrashing around, just coming up with silly riffs, which involved picking a lot. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think and it's, it's, it sort of made me realise as well, again, going back to, I think we talked about this earlier, like playing different things. Actually, no, we weren't. Sorry. I was having a conversation with somebody else. And I... And I just kind of merged into this one. I think it's the beer talking. So <laughs> what was quite nice is um, by sort of really working on that hand and just getting a lot more fluid at thrash, um, suddenly when I started jamming other stuff, it just sort of kind of not only made things sort of 
feels slightly easier. It also um, I think it helps spark other ideas as well, like when trying to do some writing. It's like, okay, right, well, now I'm really proficient in this technique. Not that I'm going to use this technique loads and loads and loads because I can do it. But now I can do it. It suddenly opened up another way of thinking a little bit, which I didn't really, which I wasn't aware of before. So I've basically been doing that and um, also chucked down some riffing ideas in good old Dadgad, uh, or Dadgad in A. When you decided that you needed to get better uh, with your right hand, did you just get better by playing songs or did you do any specific exercises? I didn't really do any specific exercises. I think I basically just, I, uh, well, I wrote a song, which was four and a half minutes long, which was basically thrashed pretty much the whole way through. And I just practiced it. And I noticed, to be fair, I probably should have just gone to the Riff Hard website and <laughs> have, a look to see what you, have a look to see what you guys are playing. But I guess what I did was I just I noticed when I was sort of tensing up and feeling weird, just to try and work on that and just try and adjust myself and relax. I think the biggest problem that I discovered was basically just tensing up a bit too much. And it was all about yeah. just relaxing myself. And that was a big thing to get over. And then once I got over that, I was playing hell of a lot better. And it suddenly made me realize that I was probably tensing up without realizing it whilst playing less faster. But I'd never really noticed it because uh, I'd never pushed myself to the extent that I was noticing the issues. Does that make sense? Makes sense. So would it be a mental thing or a position adjust? Like how do you go about relaxing? I think it was more of a mental thing, actually. Like my, my, my hand position didn't really change. I mean, maybe I did make micro adjustments, because I guess just to get more comfortable. But I think a lot of it was basically just, I'd be picking, and then I'd notice it being a bit tense, and just sort of not tell myself, because you know, I didn't have like some inner monologue chatting to my hand. But like, just, <laughs> just kind of really focusing on relaxing and yeah, probably shifting position ever so slightly to see if it's a bit more comfortable. Um, I don't really know. I didn't really think about it. So it's not really useful to say. <laughs> it kind of happens to every guitar player where you make these micro adjustments depending on what you're playing, even if you don't necessarily notice it. Like from obviously making the, the, the exercises on the Riff Hard website, I obviously had to break down a lot of the technique. And I even the position of the, my pick for certain things, even just certain strings would change ever so slightly because it was slightly more comfortable. And I obviously didn't pick up on that until... I got a camera in front of my face. And I think that we do all of those micro adjustments kind of subliminally, um, constantly, even if we're playing the same part sometimes, because, you know, if you play one riff one day and you're playing it the next day, you've actually technically played it different. So you're probably making those adjustments without what, whether they're in one direction being lazy <laughs> or one direction that you're actively trying to make it better. I think it constantly happens. Definitely. And I think... Um... Once you get comfortable with it, then you continue making micro adjustments to just change the sound slightly, like maybe you know adjust the pick angle, or you know, little things like that. It's like I, you know, do I want to be a bit more angled to get like more scrapey sound or whatever? And, but again, I don't think you consciously think about this. You're just a bit like, oh, that sounds a bit better. You know, my hands moved a fraction somehow, and it sounds better. Oh, great. <laughs> How does it work for you, Brown? Again, it's it's very similar to James. Like, um, say that I haven't played something in a little while. Let's take Doxa by Monuments or something, which right now I probably can't play. And it would take me probably one or two days to readjust the positioning of my hands to get more comfortable so that I am not tensing. Because obviously, uh, as James said, if you've not played something in a certain amount of time, and that can be anywhere from only a week up until a year, it depends on the complexity of what you're trying to play. Then it's a case of relearning because you've already got the muscle memory. But I think the the muscle memory doesn't include 
positioning sometimes because it's constantly changing. You know, our muscles aren't constant. I think there's also a physical thing as well. Like if you don't practice something, a specific thing that often, you may not be using your muscles in quite the same way. So your muscles may deteriorate or or, or change. And there's like a, an actual kind of physiological kind of thing you've got to keep up maybe. Like, like a, it deteriorates. A, a fitness Definitely. thing. It's like going to the gym, isn't it? It's a bit like it's going exactly to the gym. the same. Yeah. Um, it's quite funny. I did a little, for a laugh, like a short cover of Rain in Blood the other day on, on Instagram. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, I saw it. And um, when I first tried it, I was like, how fucking fast is this? <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> like it's, it's ridiculous. Like, and, uh, and um, I was just like, okay, don't, and, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on it. And I might have to do the whole song in, in B just for a laugh at some point, <laughs> just for the challenge. I think it will do wonders for your guitar playing. There's always one song that I always reference and go back to, and it's Master of Puppets by Metallica. For the downpicking. Exactly, and no matter how many times I play that song in a year, it's still fucking hard. Yeah, totally. No, I love that one. And it's just, <laughs> when you do get the tone right, it's fucking great. Like, yeah. I don't know, like, James Hetfield's, like, picking was one of the things that got me into metal guitar playing, really. Yep. Like his um his palm mutes were I mean the very first time I heard I think it was uh it was Enter Sandman, it was the first Metallica song I'd heard. And I remember when it kicked and I'd never really heard metal before. I was into Guns N' Roses and stuff and other rock and that kind of thing. And I remember just hearing the um and I just remember being like, What is that sound? What is that? How does he do that? It just blew my mind and then working back through all the all the Metallica records, it's like it just has such a distinctive palm mute sound, which is so recognizable. And I guess at the time it was so revolutionary as well. Nobody sounded like that or had that level of attack and that consistency and that power. Yeah. Good exercise, you're right, Brown. So I rambled on about Hetfield. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad that you appreciate Hetfield as much as me. I think he's underappreciated by a lot of guitar players. Yeah, I get shouted down in my band a lot by talking about the Hetfield. Wow. Oh, they all hate Metallica. <laughs> you don't even have to like Metallica to appreciate what a great player he is. That's true. But um, yeah, it's an argument I'm never going to win, so I don't talk about Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> I think Akel appreciates that if it wasn't for the hat, they wouldn't be Meshuggah. There wouldn't be any of us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, none of us. Yeah. Uh, I think that they're responsible for metal, even though they left the underground a long time ago, they're responsible for the underground being a sustainable business. I think they're a huge, huge driver of the metal economy. So I think that like Metallica or dislike Metallica, you should appreciate Metallica for everything that they do for everybody, basically. It's amazing what they achieved in their first eight years as a band. Like the, yeah. the first eight years was, well, absolutely incredible and game-changing. And we won't talk about Yorick. after that. <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is after that whether or not you like the music the amount of uh good that they've done for everybody is unbelievable yeah and like every record as well like imagine being around and like listening to metal in 1983 and hearing uh kill em all like when you put that record on now it still stands up today like when you listen to say whiplash and you listen to like you know the picking on that dip, like the tone as well it's got that amazing scratchy top end and it's so consistent and just think about it was recorded on fucking tape that's what's the craziest bit is that all those songs were recorded on fucking tape 
Uh, what's also crazy is Lars could obviously play drums back then as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't know what happened. <laughs> Aye, yeah. Stop the cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Sobriety, maybe. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's probably... Well, I think it's just like what we were saying earlier about the fact that if you don't play something, your your muscles deteriorate. And Lars is an old man now. And imagine trying to play... I can't even try to fathom playing Master of Puppets on guitar when I'm 60. So I don't think it's necessarily the lot worse. I think it's just old. Yeah. Also, I think it's probably just like not as dedicated and as you know i don't know i can't imagine he sits down and practices for a few hours every day i, I just i think he's sitting that's in, never seemed like his thing no i think he sits in his mansion looking at his art collection <laughs> to be fair though those drum beats can you imagine metallica without them no no of course not i think his contribution was more in the arrangements and the writing and the big ideas and the business as well like it's amazing yeah that's what i mean the big business ideas and good business decisions and all that stuff more so than being like the badass drummer. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just, he clearly, he gets a lot of shit, but he clearly was quite a badass drummer. Uh, it's just, he was great. Shame that it's deteriorated, but yeah, it is what it is. It's funny. We were talking, we were talking about Metallica with uh, Jeff Loomis a few episodes ago and he got to see them supporting Wasp in 1985. I think he said, so then I went, I went back and started listening to all of that old Metallica stuff. And it's so good that it's obscene. And this is 30 years ago, and it's still the best. The Black Album is 30 years old this year. How crazy is that? (laughs) Oh, my God. Getting old. Fuck. I know. Yeah, it's kind of insane. So speaking of uh, good business minds in a band, do you think that that's part of why Tesseract has done well is that there's good business minds in the band? I think that we've always liked to try and have our heads screwed on with basically with everything and not just leave it to chance or to management. I think having big ideas and big ambitions has always been a good thing. Also being realistic. Also, this is going to sound a little bit kind of, I don't know, nepotistic, but it's really good to make friends in the music industry and because people want to help you out if you make friends. And, I, and the music industry is notoriously nepotistic. Like everyone helps everyone out. I think a combination of having a good vision and like plan, good ideas, and also making sure everybody we need to help us is on board and we're nice to them is a big help. <laughs> you know, people may complain about nepotism. Uh, you know, it's a hot topic to talk shit about. I think that it's part of human nature to want to work with people that you like. If you have the option of working with people you like, people you dislike, or people you don't know, I mean, who are you going to gravitate towards? You're going to gravitate towards the people you like. Obviously, that just seems like such an obvious thing to do. And in the music industry, where there's so many people that are full of shit and so many people that uh, are wannabes and who or who don't have good intentions or who aren't able to deliver. There's so much of that shit that when there is someone who can not only deliver, but you know them, you like them, why would you not work with them? Yeah. And I think also generally there, I mean, there is money in the music industry, but at most levels, it's not like a whole lot of money. And a lot of people are doing it obviously for a living, but they're also doing it because it's their passion. 
if you're passionate about something, you want to do it with people that you share a passion with. And so I think that's yeah definitely a driver and wanting to work with like-minded people. I also think it's just a case of just being nice and not burning those bridges. You know what I mean? It's just because just treat people the way you want to be treated. And I think that that isn't nepotism. I think that's just being a nice person. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, like becoming friends and just being nice to people. Yeah. And also it's, you know, it is, it's nicer to be friendly to people than not, you know, like if I'm going to work with somebody, I want to hang out with them and have a nice time. So I guess that it's easier. It's a lot wine, easier. Wine in a bag. <laughs> wine in a bag. <laughs> I had some wine in the bag the other day, actually. How did it make you feel? Um, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> For what it's worth, James James is quite notorious for turning up at festivals with wine in a bag and then seeing him either later that evening or early the next morning without any clothes on outside of a tent. (laughs) Or any wine or or a bag. (laughs) Or any of that left, or unless he's cuddling it when he's going to sleep. I mean, this is a great festival life hack, this. The bag of wine, you may laugh. But it's the best thing for getting past security in a festival. You can get like a, you know, a bag that holds three bottles of wine, shove it down your crotch. It's the one place they don't feel you because, you know, that'd be sexual assault. You get through any security barricade and then you've got three bottles of wine, which you paid, what, 12 quid for rather than paying silly money for the money inside an arena. But the bag of wine's genius. I don't know why more people don't do it. <laughs> Pro tip. <laughs> you come in the arena, but you don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wake up like sleeping underneath a base bin somewhere. <laughs> How much wine is in a bag? Three liters. Yeah, you get, you get a lot. Yeah, like probably about, get about four bottles in one of in some of them. Yeah. Oh wow! That for you, that for you, Al is a gallon. Yeah, about a gallon. Well, four liters is a gallon. Yeah, so you can drink that whole thing. Well, they share it out. You know, you make friends with oh, people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can afford to be generous when you basically got. Three or four bottles of wine's worth of wine, which cost the equivalent of one drink in a venue. True. Very true. You know, what's interesting about making friends and doing business and music is that as much as we're joking about the bag of wine and being nice to people, that's actually how a lot of people do make friends and end up working together and decide to do things. Yeah. But also with music, it's like we all work in music in whatever capacity because we love it. And so there's immediately that thing with everyone's got in common. And so, yeah, you have a bag of wine, you're watching Metallica play Master of Puppets, you're having a great time. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's an easy thing to bond with, you know, wine, wine and thrash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a perfect T-shirt idea. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. I'm going to do it. Yeah, let's do it. James cuddling a bottle, uh, a bag of wine, wine and thrash. <laughs> <laughs> Am I closed or naked? Whatever you want to be, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Depends how big you want to think. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> Let's talk about guitar players again. What do you think is uh, the future of marketing solo guitar players? Um, guitar players that are sitting in their bedrooms right now who are like the future Plinis or the future Jason Richardsons, the future Tosins, what should they be? Obviously, they should be worrying about their playing, clearly. Also, that's not enough. So what do you think the future is now that, you know, like when uh, Jason Richardson was getting known, there weren't nearly as many 
guitar players posting videos all the time. He was an early adopter of doing that sort of thing and it worked for him. And now he's, he's all over video, but he's been doing that for a long ass time. A lot of these people that are still considered a younger generation have been around now for like 10 years and were first to the scene with a lot of the technology that now is like overused. So what do you think is the next step or the future for solo guitar players as far as getting the word out? Um, well, I guess they probably, fundamentally, I think they need to think about what it is they're trying to do and what they want to achieve. Whenever I look at Instagram now, because they're not following loads of guitarists, all I'm seeing is guitar videos. It's like guitars, guitars, guitars. So many. So many of them. Yeah, when you when you scroll down and it's like, uh, and it shows you the recommendations of what you should be following, you know what I'm talking about? Like once it shows you like the first few things in your feed and then suddenly it's all stuff you haven't been following, I'd say it's like 80% guitar players that suck that I've never heard of. Yeah, and quite a lot of them. There's quite a lot of popular ones just doing covers, and um, which is great. It's completely fine. I don't think that's particularly interesting. However, if it's something that's visually exciting and they're covers of songs people like, that's going to work on Instagram. So I think, I guess, a guitarist needs to think, what do they want to achieve? Do they just want to build up a big Instagram following and have loads of people watch them play guitar? If that's what they want to do, then they need to think about what they want, what people want to watch. And I think, you know, if they can make their videos visually appealing and then also play songs that people want to hear, that could really work. I mean, for example, I don't you know the guitarist Sophie Lloyd. Yes. Um, she's a British guitar player. She like nearly all of her stuff is cut. No, should I? Yeah, she's she's good, but basically she is mainly doing kind of covers and nothing that original. Um, she's also very easy on the eye. I really hope she doesn't hear this. That's a bit embarrassing to say, but you know, it's <laughs> that's basically you know, a big part of what sells it. She's playing music that people want to hear. And people like to watch her play because she looks good playing it. Well, I mean, Instagram is a visual and auditory medium when you use video. So you got to like to look at it and like to listen to it. I think the look of it becomes before the audio as well, because most people look on Instagram without any audio on. So I think that if that's what you want to do, it's mainly visual and audio comes second <laughs> which is why i think you know we were saying that 80 percent of these guitar players are not very good because they've got the video skills to get up there. <laughs> maybe yeah i i beg to differ though because you'll see jason richardson post a clip off of his iphone yeah and it'll get like 200,000 views and it'll be fucking amazing. The audio is always great though my experience tells me that um if the video is acceptable and what's in the video is something that people will like to look at. The quality of the video doesn't matter, but the quality of the audio does matter because you can put out a lower quality video as long, again, like as long as it has something that people want to watch, but if it has lower quality audio, good fucking luck. Audio has to be great. But I think it depends on the type of guitarist because I think, as Brown was saying, lots of people don't actually listen to it. They just want to look at things that look good. And um, whereas I think if you are a, a guitarist that really wants to be heard, then yes, you're right. The audio is important. But I think if you're just, and I think there's, a, there's a, definitely a balance between the two. Because it depends yeah. on what you want. Depends on what you want. I, I actually think that the, the iPhone recording as well, the reason why so many people gravitate towards it is because it makes them feel like that person isn't very far away. Because it's very similar to what they can achieve with their phone. 
So I think that there's a balance of the two. But Jason Richardson, I wouldn't say, is a good example of this because he already has his following. Yeah, but he that's, he that's what he was doing at the in the early days too. That's different though at that time because no one was really using cameras to do it. Yeah, he was basically blowing minds with his book because nobody had really seen people play like that. Like, exactly, yeah. yeah. I think it was just a different time period, whereas now, because there's so many of them, I think the visual aspect of it plays a really big part in it. And you can disagree with me completely with this, Al. It's just what I would... No, I think you're making a good point. Yeah, I think that now, this time period, 2021, I think the video has the slight edge because you want people to turn the audio on from looking at what you're posting. Well, so going back to the original thing, what do you recommend? I think basically if... If you're a guitarist that's a solo guitarist that actually wants to have a career writing music and doing something interesting, the visual element of social media is important, but I think it's best to not get carried away with that because I think it's probably quite easy to go, oh, lots of people clicked on this because I made this really nice video. I think it's always important to remember that writing interesting, especially if you're an instrumentalist, it's the key thing is writing something that's interesting and something that's going to stand out. I think even you know, regardless of whatever platforms people are using, I think eventually it's, it is always still going to be the music that's going to be what sells an original creative songwriter, if that makes sense. I guess the question becomes, are you a video content creator or are you a songwriter or guitar player? Exactly, yeah. Which one is it? And actually, I mean, I know some people who are video content creators who play guitar as the content in their videos or guitar kind of stuff who aren't great guitar players they're not bad but they're also not amazing but they have pretty big youtube channels and make a living off of it and they are a-okay with it like they never had the goal to be a jason richardson or something like that it wouldn't be possible they don't have the talent they're just not that person they're just not that person but they do make good videos uh that some people like enough people like hundreds of thousands of people like but what they do have in common with the jason richardson's is that they know what they want jason definitely has always been going for best guitar player in the world type type thing like you know like inhabit that role and you know it's arguable there's no best in the world but still like if you talk about what someone wants, clearly that's that's where his head's always been at. Th these other people I'm talking about, their head's been not at that place, but it's been at another place and they've been very clear about it. I'm going to make entertaining videos. I'm going to play guitar in them. That's my angle. So are you saying basically people should know, their, know themselves? Well, I think know themselves and also, I don't know, adapt to any opportunities that come along. Yeah, you're you're aspiring guitar player. You're doing you know great, and then you start jamming with some other people, and you form a band, and everyone in the band has slightly different skill sets. Then maybe you need to kind of go, okay, this is working, and then reassess and go, okay, well, what can I bring to this to help this move along, and um, how can we maximize all our skills together to to make this project work? What do you mean by slightly different skill sets? I'd just say um, I was an aspiring, um, I don't know shredder and um, then i joined the band and but the other guy there was a lead guitar player who was much much better um but then i discovered that i'm actually the, the better rhythm player so then i focus my efforts on what i can do for the project and uh, it's probably a very crude example but i think it's basically being open-minded to maybe change what your original plan was to work for the greater good of a project to help that project work and 
think about how you can make a project work rather than maybe how I can make myself some kind of YouTube celebrity or whatever. Well, I think it's definitely important to adjust course as you go because there's what your plans are and what your intention is and how you see yourself, but then there's reality and how the world <laughs> sees you and the feedback you get. And uh, a lot of people have blinders on to reality and uh, will just keep on doing the same thing regardless. And um, that's not necessarily the smartest thing. Like once you get some feedback from the world and realize what's working, what's not working, where the opportunities are, where they aren't, um, you know, adjusting course a little is a very smart thing to do, I think. I think you just hit, you hit a really important point there, and that's definitely taking on board feedback. And, like, if you create something and people say it sucks, obviously that's not very nice, but take it on board and work out why and see how you can improve. Don't just kind of ignore it and go, oh, they're wrong. You know, they just don't get it. They don't get my art or whatever. And, I'm, you know, sometimes people might be genuinely mean and horrible, but I think it's always good to really take on board feedback and learn because sometimes you can't, you maybe can't hear something that other people can, that's an issue in your own playing or in your songwriting or anything. I, don't, I think talking with people and get, yeah, collaborating with people is an absolutely key way to grow and get to know yourself a bit more. Yeah. And you know, if you do, if you put out 10 things into the world and uh, 10 things, three different types of things, right. Or, 2.5 different types of things. <laughs> I don't know. Multiple different types of things, but 10 total. Um, and you notice that three of the same thing did great. Everything else failed, even though it's not your favorite thing. Might be smart to look into why that worked. Totally. It's just trial and error in life, really, isn't it? It's just, yeah. You could apply this to anything in life, I suppose. <laughs> you could. Uh, you definitely could. I mean, I guess it comes down to awareness awareness of who you are, what you want, and how the world is responding to who you are and what you want. And what's interesting about it too, I think, is uh, through actually listening to feedback and adjusting course, you might figure out that what you thought you wanted originally wasn't even what you actually wanted. You might arrive to what you're actually looking for through adjusting course because it's kind of unreasonable to think that what you want as, say, a, an 18-year-old it's going to be the same thing that you want as a, when you're 28 or 38 or 48. What you think you want isn't necessarily what you actually want because you have an idea yes. about it. And I think you can really apply that to being in a band. I think, you know, when you're like I know, a teenager and you've got like, you know, ideas of what being in a band is like. And, you know, when you actually are in a touring band, the realities are incredibly different. And I think different. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, like they're not disappointing, but they're. Very, very different. <laughs> I think you were like, for me, I, I've said this again in previous podcasts. It's like when I thought of touring before I did it, I always thought Bon Jovi wanted Dead or Alive video and I would get my own jet plane, you know? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, man, I'm, I'm in an LDV. <laughs> I remember the first tours I did were in like a transit van where all the equipment was piled up at the back and then we had a mattress and then we had five of us lying on the mattress and then a couple of, was it probably four of us on the mattress and two up front went completely illegal and um and i was like okay this this is what touring is then <laughs> <laughs> that's key because um some people might have this well i'd say anyone who hasn't done it has a inaccurate view of what touring is and so then they might start doing it and some people will just love it and want to do it forever but other people will 
think to themselves, well, this is not what I thought. I don't know if this is something I actually want to do. And that's fine. That's totally, that's totally, totally fine. But I think it's important to recognize, yeah, this is not what I thought it was. It's a little different. Yeah, what well, one thing that did pan out was like um, the beer consumption that that lived <laughs> that, that lived up to expectations. <laughs> How different was it, though? I I mean, you talked about the van, obviously, but how different is the reality, in your opinion, than whatever fantasy you had in your head before you were signed, before you were touring? I guess the fantasy was basically be like, okay, it's just going and. This will be my job now. You know, like some people went off to go and you know work in a shop. Somebody went to work in a bank. Somebody became an engineer. I'm just going to go and get drunk and play guitar, and that'll be my job, which is a massively delusional way to think about it. <laughs> but, you know, when you're 15, you're like, yeah, you're looking at watching Guns and Roses videos, and you're like, yeah, that's what they do. Obviously, that <laughs> that also involved heroin and other things. I didn't really fantasize about that. I was a bit, a bit too innocent. <laughs> if I remember hearing about their parties, their after show parties that were like a hundred thousand dollars a night. <laughs> that shit was crazy. And then their seven forty seven. Yeah. Wow. I think I think we were born twenty years too late. Mm, we absolutely were. <laughs> That's what it sounds yeah, but like. Then you'd, be, you, then you'd be twenty Death. years older now, though. That's or, very true. Or died of a heroin overdose. So. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially. Probably. <laughs> yeah if you uh feel like you w- wish you were in something like gnr you should read duff mckagan's book it might change your mind <laughs> it do- doesn't sound very cool at all slash's book's amazing like slash's book's kind of I mean, it's wild and crazy but it's i don't know you kind of almost do want to be there <laughs> but i think interesting <laughs> duff's is called it's so easy and uh, he made it sound like i mean you know there was some cool stuff in it obviously but he made it sound like, uh, who knows if that's really worth it. At least his experience doesn't sound that worth it. Uh, maybe Slashes is different. Yeah, I'm sure there was some negative stuff, but the overall thing was just rock and roll excess. And like, I think Slash comes over as just like quite a level-headed, cool guy, though. So I think he probably handled the situations in his kind of composed, cool way, maybe. And I think that's also a big part about touring is that you learn very quickly if you're the right personality type to actually do it. Because, you know, people that want to be at home and have all of their nice homely, you know, being in a nice bed and getting a shower every single day, if you can't handle even just not doing that for a couple of days, then touring probably isn't for them. No, even when you get to like good levels of touring, when you're on a bus, you still go for some days. Not where, that great. Well, yeah, when there's like no showers and venues, so you basically don't wash for three days. And, and um, to be fair, I can handle that. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit, of, I'm a bit of a scumbag, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> you just have a Bradford wash, mate, just in the sink. What's a Bradford wash? <laughs> it's just where you wash your bits in the sink. Uh, okay, like a French bath. <laughs> Isn't that what? It- you were talking about a bidet. That's actually for your arsehole. No, no, no. French bath, I believe, is uh, when you uh, just do like the smelly parts and then put on <laughs> some cologne or perfume. <laughs> to be fair, as long as uh, as long as long down there is clean and your armpits are all right, I can normally get by. I normally like that's the only parts that really bother me. I think I always just want to make sure that I'm not stinking and offending other people with my stink. <laughs> I don't, as long as that my pits are clean, basically, I think. Yeah, and you can brush your teeth, right? As long as you can brush your teeth brush twice your teeth. a day. Yeah. Yeah. 
and people listening might think that this is funny or we're joking or something, but this is not a joke. That's it's true. <laughs> like you have to be okay with that. And a lot of people are not okay with that. And I, I know what you're saying that a lot of people think that they're just going to do their band and that's going to be their sole income. And, uh, in order for that to happen and do nothing else, like literally nothing else, I don't think people understand how big their band has to be. Yeah. Has to be like unrealistically big, like Lamb of God and up or something. Yeah. Lamb yeah. of God, Trivium, that sort of level. Yeah. If you want like a good standard of living, that is, if you want to be poor or whatever, or live like you're living in a college dorm forever, then okay, you can do it in smaller bands. But if you want to have like a normal adult lifestyle, and I don't mean rich, I mean, just like a normal adult lifestyle where you have like a house or something and a car and, uh, or two cars and you can raise your family and stuff and not do anything else, not do publicity or manage bands or have a studio or all these other jobs that musicians do, your band has to be pretty fucking big, real big. I've been thinking about this. I think that the threshold is between 1,500 and 2,500 people a night, wherever you go. I think that's like the bare minimum to achieve that. And I think it might even go up to three or 4,000. I think that is the point where you can say, all right, we can live off this. Yeah, not that many bands get there. No, they don't. No. On the flip side, though, because I have thought, obviously thought about this at length, being in a band and have been for a long time, is that actually now... I'm actually quite grateful that I've done lots of other things because I think I think it's good for your own life experience to do other things. Absolutely. And you, you learn more. You, you you know you're much more in touch with reality. I was imagining what it'd be like to be in a young band that blows up when you're like in your twenties. You get huge. You can live off that. But then say it dies out when you're in your late thirties, pushing forty, and you've done nothing else. That must be quite a difficult thing to do. How would you adjust? Dude, that sounds terrifying. I know. That sounds terrifying. So I've, I've scared the crap out of myself with all these thoughts about how things could have <laughs> turned out in one way or the other. Well, look, bands are not forever. Exactly. Yeah. They're just they're just not. I mean, for a band to make it as long as, say, Slayer did or something, to go that long and go out on a high note like that, that's an anomaly. I mean, I think anyone in a band should expect the band is going to have a finite lifespan. And if you get to do it for like a decade or more, that's amazing. It's fucking amazing. Most people don't get that. But I think that that's a wise thing to do is to scare yourself with that. Because I do know people who have been in that situation and uh, they are terrified, terrified. No other skills whatsoever. No other life experience whatsoever in their late thirties transitioning. Fuck that. That sounds terrible. But the other thing about what you said is uh, that you're glad that you have all this other experience. Well, that kind of goes back to what I was saying about how when you get older, you realize that what you wanted when you were 15 or something isn't what you want as an adult. Maybe if all you did was play guitar in a band now and didn't do these other things, maybe that wouldn't be enough for you as a person. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think it's good to yeah, just be di- you know, diversify what you do in life. Like, I suppose, I mean, probably just find more, you'd start finding hobbies, maybe, you know, start going surfing or something. Falconing. Yeah. <laughs> Golf course three times a week. <laughs> you know what? 
I can't don't really get golf. What's what yeah, it's like, it's, I don't I don't get it either. I come from a baseball background and so the baseball swing I think is like the perfect swing and uh the golf swing is so fucking awkward and the game is so <laughs> damn boring. It's just a social networking device. Do you know where it came from, AL? It came from Scotland and they used to do it with people's heads. <laughs> Fine. That's not what they do now, though. <laughs> if that's what they were doing, maybe it would be more interesting. <laughs> that's probably what it is. It's just transitioned. Like, they got to 38 years old and had to transition from heads. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, running, we're running out of heads. We've killed all the children now. If we kill any more, they won't grow up. <laughs> I, quite, I quite enjoy it, actually, because it's... I wouldn't consider it a sport. I'd consider it more of a skill. It's quite difficult to control a golf ball. <laughs> that swing is super unnatural. Yeah, it is. Compared to a tennis swing or a baseball swing, it's completely unnatural. You have to really learn. I mean, you have to learn techniques for all of them, but you have to learn techniques that aren't uh, intuitive at all for golf. It's an odd fucking swing. Well, maybe it's a little bit like rhythm guitar playing where you have to keep micro adjusting to feel it, you know, I'm just trying to make the connection back to this part here. <laughs> it, it, could, it could very well be. So I don't have any hobbies and I never have. Like hobbies don't work for me. Anything I've ever done, I need to be going all in or I don't know. I'm just wired that way. So I have a hard time imagining hobbies being as fulfilling as actually doing something. But maybe you're right. Maybe you've... You just played in a band, there'd be a series of hobbies like driving fast cars and falconing or something. Well, I suppose in your case, you would just take it really seriously and get to a professional standard of whatever that hobby was. That would be it, I think. But I feel like the terror of being in a band and only doing that would prevent me from just doing that. Because think about all the things that could go wrong in a band. You're relying on all these people to keep their shit together. <laughs> that just seems super risky to me. Yeah, it is. Basically, if one piece of the puzzle wasn't working properly, it could all kind of collapse. Overnight. Yeah, somebody could do something really stupid, which would destroy the band. Or Look, I look at a situation like As I Lay Dying, for instance. Do you remember how big they were at the time when shit went down? Humongous. They were on top of the world and uh, were only getting bigger. And that just, it's like driving a car at 200 miles an hour straight into a brick wall. Everybody in that radius, you know, the label, band members, management, crew, like all those people, even if they had other sources of income, like that thing that they were counting on, basically for all intents and purposes, just went away. Just like that, boom, gone from one day to the next. While that can happen in anything, to some degree in a band, it's especially volatile. Well, exactly. And I think depending on how serious it is, it could be finished, like to bring a bit of a dark example. Uh, yeah, bit, you're talking about I know lost you profits. The, the lost profits. <laughs> it's like, yeah. obviously that stuff happened with Ian Watkins and like everybody else in the band, you know, they're screwed. Like they're not going to work again just for the association. Yeah. No, they have nothing to do with it. Oh, yeah, yeah the they literally can't, they can't continue a career in the music industry at all because no one will take them seriously. They will just ignore it because they're the association. Yeah, or they just wouldn't want to take the risk or they'll just be a bit like a bit grossed out about it anyway. It's like, would you want to work with somebody who was working with a pedo? Like a proper pedo? Like, no. 
You just want to keep away from it. No. And at the same time, I would feel really bad for them because if they really didn't know anything, mm. yeah, then they're also a victim of it. Absolutely. Uh, obviously not, not on the same level, obviously. But yeah, they're, I mean, they're a victim of that person as well. Like I think someone that does something terrible has, you know, there's the people they directly affect by the terrible thing they do, but then there's everybody else too who gets affected by the, like the blast radius of, uh, of whatever terrible thing they did. So even if I wouldn't work with those guys, I'd still feel bad for them. Totally. I mean, I feel terrible for everyone in that band. Like, I mean, they were, they were really, I think they blew up quite young as well. So they were probably in that situation where they just lived off the band and didn't do anything else. Then they suddenly found themselves in probably their mid thirties with nothing. I mean, that's pretty terrifying. Exactly. So that's that's why I think scaring yourself like that is probably a good thing. But it also depends how involved you are with the band, whatever band you're in. Like, you can get that big, but as long as you understand certain aspects of it as you're doing it and actually learn, spend the time to learn, then you do come out of it with a skill set if you understand how to do it. So, like, that could be something like being a guitar tech, for example. You know, that's, well, not now with COVID, but, you know, that if you get into the right position is an extremely well-paid job or, you know, understanding the management side of it because you've seen that entire part of it going. It all depends on where, if you want to learn, it's the guitar guitar or musician players within a band. It depends on what they want to learn along the way. And actually that raises another point. I think it's important that if you're in a band and if say you are lucky enough to blow up big enough to live off it straight away, it's important enough to it's important to learn about these things anyway. So you do have some level of understanding of what the people around you are doing. And you're not gonna get fucked over. Basically, yeah. <laughs> or at least not as bad. <laughs> well, you know, it's not even so much about getting fucked over, though yes, I agree. It'll help you not get fucked over, but it's also because people around you are fallible. They can't be expected to understand everything about your vision or always make decisions that are in your best interest, they've got their own best interests to deal with too. And um, sometimes their best interests might be in your interests, but not in your best interests. And uh, that doesn't mean they're screwing you over, just means they're, you know, autonomous and uh, have their own priorities. And uh, the more you understand about how things work, the easier it will be to navigate those things where uh, where there's gray areas, where it seems like something's a benefit, but is it the greatest benefit or why are you being put in this situation? Is there a better situation you could have been in, but you're getting put in this situation because someone has some sort of an under the table deal or something with somebody else and you're not privy to it. That's not getting screwed over, but those are the little gray area things that come up all the time. And if you don't know, if you don't know how this business works, you won't spot any of that on a simpler thing your manager or somebody could be doing a job and you know what they're doing and they may not be pushing something as hard as you feel they could be and you can reasonably say how about you try this or how about you do that and then become a part of that process and um, just get get more involved and bring more ideas to the table because because at the end of the day it is a creative industry and everything like managers are coming up with ideas to you know develop bands publicists are coming up with ideas to sell bands um, you know, like there's no set rules to do anything. So the more creative brains coming together to try and come up with ideas means that you're going to have more options and 
hopefully do better. So it's worth getting involved in all that. It's also worth remembering that as a band, you're a business and everybody else is actually working for you and you're, you yeah. are actually the boss. So it's, you should really know what's going on. It's weird because um, a lot of young bands, I don't know if they fool themselves. Everyone always told me when I got in that they work for me. The label said it, the management said it, but then even though that was said, there was still this implication that we work for them. It's because they hold all the power. Yeah, I think that's what it is. They hold all the power, they hold all the opportunities so they can, I guess it's a bit like if you started a business in a coffee shop, but you didn't know how to make coffee and you hired a barista and they knew how to do you know, make the coffee, they would hold all the power and basically tell you what to do because without them, you wouldn't be able to run your business. And, um, and with labels and so on, like, bands need their channels and they need their experience um more so than the label needs them or at least they make bands feel like that because there are other bands they could work with but at the end of the day if it wasn't for the bands and the music then none of it, no, this industry wouldn't exist because yeah i think that's what people and bands do need to remember but it, yeah it's a, it's a difficult balance of power when you're a smaller band they need to remember that but at the same time they also need to remember that there's other bands yeah exactly if you don't hold any clout or any weight then then you don't have a strong negotiating position. So most bands' first record deals are usually terrible. Oh, God. Like, <laughs> very poor percentages, giving up all ownership. And, um, and like, it's the only option on the table, so it's kind of what you've got to do. And then, then once your band progresses and you do have a bit more bargaining power, then you can negotiate better terms. But You know, I, I think it's very good that you're saying that because I think that um, there's this weird idea out there that baby bands shouldn't take bad deals. If baby bands don't take bad deals, they're not going to get any deal they can take because there are no good deals for baby bands. I mean, no one's going to offer a baby band a good deal. It just doesn't work that way. So if they want a deal, it's going to have to be bad and then they're going to have to do well. And like you said, then renegotiate. That's how it's done. I was just going to say it's worthwhile saying there's a difference between bad and fucking appalling too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, there's like there's there's a bad record deal where like you need to sell 20 to 25,000 records in order just to break even with the label. But then there's atrocious where they take 360 of everything. Um so that comes back to understanding the diff and like under like basically you need to write down the pros and the cons as a baby band. Do you want this to achieve this or do you not? Mm, absolutely, and um, but also I think it's good to put your head in the mind of the label as well when you're looking at not an atrocious deal but a bad deal, which is probably what you're going to have to take. And like if you're a band that's worth very few tickets, very few record sales, the labels are obviously not going to spunk loads of money on you and then start paying you straight away. But, you know the the label is a business in itself. You know, they, they're basically just, they need to make their money back before they pay you. And it's kind of a harsh reality. That's how they operate. That would be the same in business too. Like if you start a business with partners and there's no investors, so you guys are paying in or one person happens to be more financially well off than the other partners, say the other partners have more skills in something, but uh, you start a business and one person or two people put in most of the money, well, they're going to get paid back first before profits start going out, however they're divided. That's just normal business. It makes sense. 
when you put it like that, suddenly the bad deal just seems normal, actually. But I guess. <laughs> no, it's a little bit, it is a little bit different because when you're in business, the uh, you pay back based on what you earn, right? But with a label, like, you know, say you sell X amount of records, but it only gets taken out of your percentage. Yeah, yeah. So that's where the record deals are fucky, is the way that they calculate royalties. Like, it's some very fuzzy math. Yes, which I didn't understand at the beginning. So that's the part that's fucked up about record deals is that you're only the per- your royalty percentage is all that's being counted out of the money that comes in. So in reality, it's not you have to do a lot more than recoup. Yeah. You have to recoup several times over. Yeah. <laughs> that is crooked. Completely crooked, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know any other way to put it. It they, I don't understand any justification for that aspect of a record deal. I feel like it's one of those carryovers from a time period where artists really didn't know anything. You know, the 60s and the 50s where artists literally knew nothing and were just signing anything. And um, people were people were making contracts that were very easy to misunderstand. Um, now, this is coming from someone who's got a perspective that business people aren't necessarily bad. Like I'm pro business and um, I think that there's two sides to every story and I don't believe that labels are villains or anything like that. However, that is bullshit. <laughs> and I wish that was changed in uh, record deals. But I think it ultimately comes down to like what competition is there. If there are a bunch of labels after one band, then obviously they're going to offer better terms. But if yeah. there's no, no competition then a label can offer what it wants, which isn't right, but I guess that's that's capitalism. It is what it is. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, it is. so as much as, as as I just said that, what my personal feelings are towards that that standard thing in record deals, I still think bands should take one if it's a good enough label and uh, there's enough opportunity. If it's between that and nothing, they should prob- probably take something. I think the main thing to negotiate is the amount of albums. Yes, I was going to say exactly that. Because you basically, yeah. you could have a couple, of, say three albums that are terrible, but then if they do well, then then your career will change at that point. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, now, it, one thing that's interesting about that is, uh, you know, like you get told to sign for fewer records, like don't let them have too many records. But like, for instance, Roadrunner, their standard deal is six or seven albums. And there's, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a lot, but uh, you can't get out of it. If you want to sign to Roadrunner, you are signing for six or, as a baby band, you're signing for six or seven albums. Like that is just the way it goes. For life. Yeah. On the other hand, they put in a ton of money to their bands. So they want to be around when that money comes back in. They don't want to set you up for Century Media to then make the money off of it on album four. So it makes sense. I guess you just gotta, you gotta think about what things will look like in the future if you do well, right? I think, and uh, what kind of clout you'll have and uh, what you'll be able to change once you have that clout. Yeah, I think the other thing as well is like, regardless of the deal, making sure you don't do a 360, make, keep your merch rights because merchandise is pretty much where every baby band makes any money. Like, and well, all bands across their career, like merch is vital. But I think at the beginning, that's what sustains you. Like you don't make, you don't see anything from the record company when you're on tour, but you do see merch sales every night, which puts fuel in the tank and yeah, gives everyone PDs. It gives everyone a McDonald's dinner. 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's important too, considering that a lot of venues take a merch cut too. So, which is fucked up. That's fucked up. And it's more in the US though, I think, rather than here. It doesn't happen as much in Europe and the UK. It does in the bigger venues, but not in the smaller venues. In the bigger venues, that's because they, they try and sell it for you, don't they? And they take like a ridiculous cut. Yeah. I hate hate that shit. But uh, so that's what I'm saying, though. Like, that's why I agree about the 360 is like you can't be giving out a portion of your merch. Like your management is taking a part of the merch. Uh, your lawyer might be taking a part, you know, because they've got a percentage. Then what? The label is going to take some of it. And then the venue is going to take what? And then you have to pay tax. <laughs> you got to pay tax. You got to pay the merch company back because uh, they'll front you those shirts generally. Then what's left? You can't give up your merch. What I understand is that a lot of labels and or like they're, okay, we won't do a 360, but we want two designs to sell on our store. You know, like there's some, there is some sort of compromise that even baby bands can do. That's what we did, I think. I think that's completely acceptable. Yeah, why not? Give them their shirts. Like just as long as you can sell shirts on the road and not have other people take that income. I think that's the key thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, again, like there's, it's a two-way street. If you want them to compromise, you've got to give them something. If what they want is t-shirt income, then okay, find a way to give them t-shirt income that doesn't also fuck you over on the road. And that's give them their designs they can sell in their store and uh, be on with your day, I guess. So you're pro bands taking the deal within reason. Within reason and also making sure you do have somebody who can read a contract and actually tell you oh, what's yeah. in it. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the two key points, which are yeah, fewer albums as possible and retaining merch rights and other than that, I think if the label is able to, you know, promote you internationally and really raise a profile, then that's that's the trade-off. It's really tough to do it without a label. Uh, well, then going back to Pliny, he did he's done it all on his own. He's kind of like another real kind of what's the word anomaly. Yeah, he literally, I think, right. I do his publicity. He's got Liam who does his booking, and then he's got Raul who does his digital marketing. And I think that's literally it. I don't think he's got anybody else on his team which is kind of nuts and i think mike dawes is like that too yeah but he's also he also plays with the moody blues so it's a little bit of a different situation he does but i wasn't but still like wasn't he independent anyways yeah yeah okay so first of all i think that's awesome that those guys are capable of doing that anytime i hear of something like that nick johnson i think he is too yeah yeah i think that that's fucking great Good for them. And intervals. Yeah, that's right. Intervals. But they really are anomalies. And uh, and people listening should know that. They should know that that's definitely the exception. We talk about them because it's interesting and it's really, really cool. And like, you know, we've had them all on this podcast. And so it makes it seem like there's more of them out there than there really are. Like, kind of like if the people that you associate with have all achieved this thing. For instance, you could trick yourself into thinking that that's the way the world is. And so I just want people listening to know that these Pliny situations are not the norm. And most people who try to do that fuck up when they could have just gotten a record deal and been fine. You also notice that there aren't many bands that do that. These are all individual solo artists with much lower overheads because they do everything themselves, produce everything themselves. 
they just pay players when they go on tour and that's pretty much it whereas if you're a band you've suddenly got like four or five times the amount of people to sustain so yeah. the model has to be different and also uh, it does happen obviously where bands don't sign to labels and they do really well and the one that always pops up is enter shikari for me but that again is a really big anomaly where they sold out the london astoria before they even released an album well they're just an anomaly band in general right they they kind of built their profile by grafting and playing every toilet in the uk every yep. day for two years like didn't they do like 300 shows in a year or something stupid maybe it wasn't that many yeah. but it was it was ridiculous and um they just built a fan base the old-fashioned way which was kind of insane you know i think a band getting signed is rare a band becoming successful after signed is very rare but a band doing it completely on their own is an anomaly all of those things are rare like just getting signed and becoming successful is already like very, very, very short list of people ever pull that off. But then an even shorter list is someone who was able to, a band that was able to achieve success without the traditional industry stuff. That's like, I know we can all think of examples here and there, but like there was this girl, Ani DeFranco in the nineties who did a, like, I don't know, like, a, I don't know what she did. She did like a, whatever music she did, but she sold like 2 million records or something on her own, which is kind of, that was unheard of then too. And people would talk about her as the example of what you can do without a label. And it's like, yeah, you're thinking of her. Who else? Who else is there? <laughs> In the nineties, that's insane actually, because you didn't have the tools that we have now. Like that's crazy. No, exactly. And so there were artists and magazines who were saying that you didn't need labels anymore and uh, because of Ani DeFranco. Um, and then eventually in the mid-2000s, Nine Inch Nails and Radiohead, like they went label-free and people were like, you don't need labels. It's like, yeah, well, they're huge. They, they could be their own label and it would actually mean something. So I think that there, it's a very sexy idea to do it without the industry and people like writing about it and it's like a nice fantasy but uh, people should just be aware that this is like super unheard of. Yeah. And also, again, looking at those examples like Pliny and Aaron, Aaron um, even though they're doing it without a label, they're still hiring people that would, in a label setup, be working for you. So they're still yes. bringing, it's effectively like they are their own label. So you're not avoiding the industry. You're, there's, no, there's no way of avoiding it. Right? If, you want, if you want to get gigs, you need somebody who works in booking, you know, if you want to get in magazines, you need somebody who can um, place, you know, place your stories, you know, you need to, you can't really avoid the industry unless you're a genius and you learn how to do all these jobs yourself. Is that possible? A headache that you don't want. <laughs> totally. Doing all those jobs plus making music seems a bit extreme. There'll be someone that will be able to do it. Of course, of course, there's always someone. But, uh, but I just... It's kind of like we were saying about knowing yourself and knowing what it is you really, really want. I think also while you, you should be pushing your boundaries and trying to find out what they are and seeing what you're really capable of, you should also be realistic about your limits. And uh, if, if you don't have the bandwidth to take on all these tasks and then also still be good at your instrument and then also write music and then also be a human being, uh, then you got to find a, or maybe you do have the energy, but you're just not good at them at all. 
<laughs> that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> as long as you recognize it and you partner with people or companies who can do it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Play to your strengths and yeah, you said it perfectly. Nothing else to add. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, James, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us. No worries. Yeah, it's been really nice. It's been nice to catch up. It's been a pleasure. Nice to catch up with you, James. It's been a long time. Why does everyone keep bringing up Master of Puppets? Because it's sick. Yeah. To be fair, that was it was my... I, I kind of brought it up, but it was good to know that James had the same level of appreciation of James Hetfield as everyone should, which is that he is God. It's just interesting to me how many people believe that. Yeah, way ahead of his time, way ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that there was something to be said for learning a new style of rhythm playing. And I think that some people think that maybe because thrash is like an older school style that it's probably easy compared to the stuff people play now. And uh, I think it's just different. It takes a different kind of stamina with the pattern style stuff that you hear now. You have to have a very good understanding of rhythm and timing, stopping and starting, things like that, like palm muting, like all that different kind of stuff, with the exception of like Mishuga and stuff. <laughs> it's not the same kind of endurance game. No. Whereas the older school stuff, like playing gallops at like 230 BPM for five minutes straight is intense. Intense. Yeah. It's just a yeah. different level of playing. And, you know, you're talking about like now it's like off, often or not the rhythmic aspect is put in, but it's not like the rhythmic aspect wasn't always there. It's just that it's transitioned its way into metal. Cause you know, if you listen to some jazz stuff from, you know, early 20th century and go back further, you know, some classical composers, romantic era composers. It's crazy. Some of it's absolutely bonkers. And it's always been there. It's just a case of the fact that the guitar player has adopted this style. So when it comes to talking about thrash and the endurance thing, it's just that it hasn't been done for a little while. So when you actually go back to try and play that stuff now, it still is ridiculously hard because it's not something that we generally focus on, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like he said, it opened up ways to think about things that he didn't previously do. And I think that's one of the main benefits about learning something that's outside of the style that you're playing in, because that's how music develops, isn't it? It's about your inspiration from other music that you can put into your own with your own voice on it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the more seriously you take learning things outside your comfort zone, the more of a difference it will make for sure. I think because a lot of musicians or just people in general, they have that initial phase where they're very excited about something. And so they'll make a lot of progress in that. And then it'll plateau like all progress does. And they'll just kind of stick to a routine because that's what they've been doing all that time. However, there was a point in time when that routine was helping them improve. At this point in time, that routine is just helping them maintain or whatever. Uh, but because it's their comfort zone, they're not thinking about going outside of it. But little by little, they come to the realization that they haven't gotten much better. And a year or two or three or 10 have gone by. So I think that you have to fight your nature on this. Yeah. Fight that comfort zone and actively try to throw new things in. And I think that doesn't just come down to the playing either. It's also down to what you're listening to as well. And, you know, I, I find 
without obviously being horrible towards metalheads here, they're quite narrow-minded when it comes to listening to different styles of music. I once was, you know, there was a lot of things that I just completely wrote off because it didn't have a distorted guitar in it or it didn't have a guitar solo or something like that. But not only just playing different things, but also listening to different things because the way that... If you think about it, it's the same 12 notes just portrayed and expressed in different ways. And learning as many different expressions of those notes as you can is only going to expand on what you are capable of in the future. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, I do think, though, that people should be careful about learning things that they really don't like or that they don't want as part of their sound because anything they learn is going to come out through it. So while I am saying <laughs> leave your comfort zone, I'm also saying mind your tastes. So In, be intentional about it. Exactly. Just make sure that you're learning exactly what you enjoy. There's no point learning gypsy jazz unless you're going to, if you're like really into it and really want to put that kind of thing into your playing. Flavor. Exactly. That flavor or all that type of expression because if you spend all that time learning it and then you don't find a way to apply it then what use was it to you to spend all that time and let's be honest it would be a lot of time <laughs> oh well the thing is even if you don't find a way to apply it it will still come through yeah so if you spend long enough learning a style it will come through so like for instance uh i don't listen to the blues i never have i don't like it uh it's not my thing so I stayed away from working on that kind of stuff because I didn't want it coming through my playing. And uh, people can say that that's dumb or that uh, small-minded or whatever, but it was a decision. I did not want to be influenced by blues any more than I had to be through just listening to music that was influenced by it. But I didn't want it actually coming through my playing. Yeah, I didn't want to develop those pentatonic tendencies that so many guitar players have. And so I chose to stay away from it. I think that was a wise move because when you do listen to a lot of guitar players, as you say, you can immediately hear if they've been, you know, abusing those kind of guitar players. And not to say that you can't do something original with that sound, because any sound you can make sound original and have your own voice on it. But it automatically comes through. You can hear it in the styles of licks that those guitar players are playing if they're into something. Which is fine if that's what they want to do. Like, yeah, I love Zach Wilde. I love Slash. I love a lot of people who come from that world. I, there's nothing wrong with it. I just didn't want that in my style. That's all. I think that's a, a very good piece of advice for people wanting to learn stuff. Just because you can't play the blues, it doesn't matter if you don't want to do it. Correct. However, what's interesting is I did learn Slash and Zach solos. <laughs> so you got the blues in there anyway, mate. <laughs> yeah, but not directly. Yeah. I got their, you know, I got their influence of it. So it was already, you know, a few steps removed by the time it got to me. You know what? I, I would say that, I, I mean, I still do to this day. I listen to him almost on a weekly basis and it's Eric Clapton. And I know that that's kind of probably a controversial topic for a lot of guitar players is he's not considered like a great guitar player, um, you know, by today's standards. But I still think what he did in the blues kind of vein was absolutely incredible. And I'll play Layla for days, mate. Oh, he's really good. 
George Harrison also isn't considered really good by today's standards, and he was fucking awesome. He, they wrote good songs. That's what it comes down to. And his solos were tasty. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of those players from that era are overlooked for how good they were. Yeah, definitely. It's just because of the, you know, people when they pick up guitar nowadays, they're looking for that people that pushes the boundaries that we haven't heard. But unfortunately, they weren't there to experience the boundaries that were being pushed by these people at the time. And I think that's, I think that's where the problem lies and then you get all of a sudden oh they're not very good guitar players and it's like but no one was doing that when they were alive like they are innovators and without them you wouldn't get what we've got now which is for me the Hetfields or the you know the Meshuggahs um and without all of that music that probably would have never have happened yeah I mean I have a hard time understanding it too because I wasn't there I do too I mean the Beatles for me it's not really my thing like there's a couple of songs that I think are absolutely incredible but I don't go out my way to listen to it every single day, you know? Every single day. Yeah, every single day. I do not listen to it. <laughs> Is there anything you do listen to every single day? Hans Zimmer. I've gone through those phases. Yeah, with, uh, you know, when I first saw Interstellar and uh, No Time for Caution came on and it just blew me away because of the the way that that visual aspect was presented with this music, for me, it was perfect. So then I watched him, saw him live, and I was in tears (laughs) because I just thought it was absolutely incredible, just the way that he could portray music to recreate that scene. I just thought it was the perfect way to explain what he was trying to explain. So yeah, Hans Zimmer, I listen to him nearly on a daily basis. It makes me happy. Yeah, he's phenomenal. What about you? What do you, what are you listening to these days during your workouts, Al? Demo Borgir, Satyricon, and uh, Hypocrisy. Oh, all good bands. Yeah. They're just speaking to me right now. I, I think, well, you've been a fan of those bands for years, right? Yes, but uh, they're all, I'll also go years without listening to them. Yeah, I think that's smart too. I think that distance makes the heart grow fonder as well. Like when you haven't listened to a song in ages and you put it back on, you've kind of forgotten about it, how good it was. And it's like listening to it for the first time again. Those bands are really, really good. And they've been really good for a really long time. I think I need to listen to them more because I every single time I listen to those bands, I'm like, this is sick. And it's just that it hasn't quite entered my vocabulary of everyday listening, but it took the same amount of time for um decapitated to get there um or even Gajira you know the first time I saw Gajira I walked out Demu Borgir are great writers like uh the Death Cult Armageddon album is pretty spectacular okay I'm gonna write that down especially if you like Hans Zimmer stuff yeah I mean I watched a live show of theirs on YouTube not too long ago and I was like wow this is sick and so I should listen to more and the same thing happened with Behemoth I listened to one of the uh, Evangelicon I think is the name of the what mm-hmm. I can't pronounce that Evangelion. word Evangelion yeah I can't remember how it's pronounced exactly but I remember listening to that album and being blown away as well but again I don't listen to Behemoth every single day but I still appreciate it but I think I need to start including this little bit of darker and black metal into my vocabulary because it's angry and I like angry. <laughs> That's what I like about it. It's it's a different kind of angry. It's not like a meathead angry. Like a lot of people like meathead angry for working out, like hate breed or shit like that. Yep. But it's not really my speed. Uh this black metal y kind of stuff is very angry. But uh but it's also ornate enough, I guess. It's like ornate enough to where I'm satisfied. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm going to start adding it to my vocab then because it is good. Yeah, Death Cult Armageddon is fucking awesome. Well, anyways, you want to get good at rhythm guitar? Go to riffhard.com. We'll see you next week, Brown. See you next week, mate. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>